welcome to the LSE and to this uh, dialogue organized by the Forum for European Philosophy. Um, my name is Catherine Oudar. I'm a visiting fellow at the Philosophy Department and I'm the chair of the Forum for European Philosophy. And it's a great pleasure and a honor really to welcome our two speakers tonight. Uh, the debate is, as you see, on uh, poverty, justice and development, where our two speakers have been major contributors for many years. And um, so it, it will take the form, I mean, the, the, the evening will be organized in the following way. First, each of our speakers will uh, talk for 10-15 um, minutes, and then they will exchange, and, in, and then I will open the floor for questions. So, Professor Thomas Pogger is well known, I imagine, here at LSE, and um, he's a professor of philosophy and international affairs at Yale University. And uh, his major work has been uh, in the field of world poverty and human rights. And uh, he has really opened the way for moral reflection, philosophical reflection on the values involved in helping the poorest nations in the world. What are our duties? I mean, that's really a very deep ethical question. And uh, it means that the political um, powers and the economic powers have to respond to these small arguments and they're not happy to do that. They, are, they feel threatened most of the time. So I think Thomas has done a fantastic job in raising the awareness. And uh, Professor David Hume is based in Manchester and uh, his uh, field is more field work, I would say, yes, yep. and he's an economist and um, a social scientist, and um, he has done uh, a lot of work in the field of um, health, um, health inequality and uh, uh, problem of justice in very poor countries. And uh, his last book is Global Poverty, How Global Governance is Failing the Poor. So again, a very argumentative and uh, um, stimulating uh, position confronting the powers to there around, I mean, uh, in that question. Okay, so um, Thomas, will you like to start? Sure. With your PowerPoint, and then David will follow. Thank you. Good. So this is about poverty, justice, and development. And let's first start with a few facts and figures about the poverty problem as we find it today. We have uh, a little over 7 billion people, maybe 7.2 billion people in the world today, of whom pretty large numbers still suffer severe deprivations that are related to poverty. So they suffer such things as chronic undernutrition, lack of access to essential medicines, lack of safe drinking water, lack of adequate shelter, lack of electricity, lack of adequate sanitation, illiteracy, and child labor. So if you add up together all the people who suffer from at least one or two of these deprivations, you get pretty easily to half the world's population still being quite severely true, poor. 
Now, even worse is the picture of premature deaths. Uh, so conservatively estimated, somewhere around a third of all human beings die a premature death from poverty-related causes. And you can see here what these causes are. I've counted those causes of death which are essentially unrepresented in the rich countries, so we can be pretty sure that they are poverty-related. Obviously, poor people often die from causes that we know very well, such as diabetes, heart attack, uh, or uh, things of that sort, but I've not counted any of those deaths, even though many of them occur earlier than they would in a rich country with lesser environmental burdens and better medical care. So just focusing on those causes concentrated among the poor, you already get about 18 million a year. And if you put that in perspective, you can see that that dwarfs all the great conflagrations of the 20th century. So in just 24 years since the end of the Cold War, a lot more people died from poverty-related causes than in the entire 20th century died from government-sponsored violence of one sort or another, wars, civil wars, gulags, concentration camps, and so forth. So that obviously puts a question mark over one of the human rights that we endorse. Here is the formulation from the Universal Declaration that everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of oneself and one's family, including food, clothing, housing, and so forth. This sort of complex of social and economic human rights are unfulfilled for a majority of the human population. They don't have secure access to the goods here listed. Now, we can use that as a kind of minimal conception of institutional justice. We can say that human rights are a minimal standard that any institutional order should fulfill, be it a national institutional order or a supranational institutional order. Obviously, none of us is going to be satisfied with a conception of justice that requires only the fulfillment of human rights insofar as it's reasonably possible from institutional design, but we all, I think, would want to require at least that much as a minimal condition. And this sort of minimal conception of justice accords well with Article 28 of the Universal Declaration, which says that everyone is entitled to a social and international order in which the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration can be fully realized. Now, what I'm suggesting is that we don't yet have a supranational institutional order, and in many countries we don't yet have a national institutional order under which the rights set forth in the Universal Declaration, in particular the economic and social human rights, can be fully realized. Against that claim, two arguments are often made. One counter-argument is that people say, but there has been progress. So there's been a lot of attention recently because we are moving close to 2015 to the end of the MDG, Millennium Development Goals period. There's been a lot of attention to how we have done a lot of heavy lifting, lifting people out of poverty, improving hunger, and so forth. So people point out that the percentages are going down, that even the absolute numbers are going down, at least after a few cosmetic changes in the methods by which the hungry and the poor are counted. But one thing we should remember here is that much more would have been achieved for the world's poor if they had merely participated proportionately in global economic growth. So the poor have indeed benefited from the increasing size of the pizza, the increasing 
global product, but the poor have lost ground in relative terms. Their slice of the pizza has become much narrower, and I will show you some figures about this in a moment. But let me first say that what really matters is not any comparison with the past. What really matters is the comparison with what would now be possible. So the question we need to ask is how much of today's poverty is today really unavoidable? And here my answer would be virtually none of the poverty that we find today is today unavoidable. All of this poverty could easily be avoided. And so in that regard, comparing to a contemporaneous, contemporaneous subjunctive baseline, our generation is really doing worse than any generation in human history. We have more avoidable poverty today than there ever has been. So the second counter-argument says that there is a tremendous divergence in poverty trajectories and in general economic trajectories different countries to differentially well. Some countries have improved a lot, others not. And that shows conclusively that national factors must be responsible for the persistence of poverty where it persists, that global factors are irrelevant. And a quick counter-argument to that is simply by analogy to say that if you find at the end of the semester that the class shows very great differences in performance with some students having learned a lot and others very little, you surely can't conclude from that that the teacher is irrelevant to students' learning success. So it remains possible that a better teacher would have led to a much better performance of all students. And it's also quite possible that a different teacher would have led to different inequalities. So the teaching style of somebody, the teaching materials they use, can make a difference to which students thrive in the classroom and which ones do not. And similarly, with our international institutional order, the fact that there are differential evolutions of poverty in different countries shows surely that national factors are relevant, but it doesn't show that global factors are not relevant. Global factors may be highly relevant by being more hospitable for certain countries than for others, for example, and also by uh, conditioning the overall performance of the developing world. Now, what are the kinds of global factors that matter? I won't have time to go through these in detail, but here are seven. So pollution rules, for example, that uh, the rich are able to offload the burdens <coughs> of their consumption on poor people without paying any compensation. Pharmaceuticals, that the poor countries were forced to institute very strong intellectual property rights that hamper access to essential medicines in the poor countries. Protectionism was grandfathered into the WTO rules and is still hampering export opportunities of developing countries. Illicit financial flows drain somewhere around a trillion dollars from the developing world each year largely through tax dodging by multinational corporations and by rich individuals in poor countries, tax dodging that is specifically facilitated by a complex network of tax havens, secrecy jurisdictions, shell companies, sleazy banks, and so forth. The four privileges, that's, that basically stands for the fact that we grant to any rulers, no matter how they came to power, no matter how they exercise power, 
the right to borrow money in the name of the whole country and the right to sell the resources of the country, the natural resources, thereby stealing these resources from the people, burdening the people with repayment obligations, and of course also collecting the money that they need to remain in power, even against the united opposition of the people. So again, there's no good reason why we recognize the rulers as being entitled to do that if they are not legitimately elected and don't exercise power in the interests of the population. The arms trade helps that because these rulers can then use some of their money to buy the weapons that they need to keep themselves in power. Labor standards, again, are notable just like pollution rules for their absence. We have no, we, you know, we have a very detailed system of intellectual property rights. They have to be just right in every country. Every country is forced to adopt these very strong intellectual property rights. But with labor standards, we basically leave countries to do what they want and thereby organize a race to the bottom where poor countries, in order to attract foreign capital investment, have to compete with each other in offering ever more mistreatable workforces for sale. Now, all these different elements, and these are not by any means all the relevant elements, but these elements of our global institutional order, which is designed by the world's rich for the world's rich, leads quite predictably to a polarization of income, because obviously those who can influence these rules influence them in their own favor and do so in a way that increases their share of global household income. So the story of the last 20 years or so is a story of increasing uh, share, an increasing income share for the richest 5%. They're the great winners. And if we had more differentiated data, I think it would turn out, as it does in the United States, for example, in its income distribution, that the gains are very heavily concentrated even at the very, very top of that 5% group. So in the United States, for example, the top one-hundredth of 1%, 1 a mere 30,000 people, are the very big winners who increase their share of U.S. income sevenfold over this period. So that's where the greatest win happens. Roughly 3% of global household income was added to the share of the top 5%. And at the bottom, we find the greatest losers losing uh, the bottom 30% losing a good bit of their share going down from 1.52% to 1.25% in just 20 years. This is the same information graphically. So you can see here flipping back and forth between 1988 and 2008, a great win for the top 5% and in relative terms a massive loss for the bottom uh, quintile and the second quintile from the bottom as well. So key facts are that in these 20 years the top 5% of the human population gained about 3%, which is as much as the entire bottom half had left at the end of that period. So just the gain for the top 5% is as large as the entire share for the bottom half. The poorest 30% would be 21% better off at the end of the period if only they had just maintained their share of global household income. And had that gain that in fact went to the top 5% gone to the bottom 50%, this would have sufficed to wipe out poverty already. So again, that speaks to what I said earlier, namely that pretty much all poverty today is avoidable. If you think that 
the same move that happened actually happened in favor of the top 5% could also have happened in favor of the bottom half of the human population. This is what the world would then look like. So the top 5% would still have ample resources, but the bottom two quintiles would have a good bit more, roughly as much as the middle quintile now has, and that would suffice to end poverty on this planet, at least the severe poverty that jeopardizes human rights. Now, how can we make progress? Uh, one main point I want to make is that uh, development assistance is all fine and good, but development assistance alone is not realistically going to overcome the centrifugal tendencies that emanate from our global order as we have created it now. It won't be able fully to compensate. So we shouldn't, as people who try to protect the poor, focus all our efforts on trying to increase development assistance and trying to make it more efficient, worthy as these goals are, but we should also try to influence the rest, the other 99% of the global institutional architecture that is currently blowing a pretty severe headwind into the faces of the poor. So we have to mainstream the concern for the poor beyond development assistance. So, uh, and that means thinking about institutional reforms at the supranational level, also at the national level, but especially at the supranational level, where relatively small changes often can make a massive difference to how the income of the poor develops. The problem is the interests of the poor are not really represented in the national negotiations and so get easily overlooked. And for the sake of trivial gains for the rich, often decisions are made that very severely hurt poor people. The TRIPS agreement is just one such example. So here are a few ideas about what sort of institutional reforms uh, one might push in order to change the rules and make them a little bit less hostile to the poor. We could have a tax on trade-distorting subventions. Pretty much all economists will tell you that protectionism is a bad thing, it's inefficient, it uh, diminishes the benefits from comparative advantage and so forth. So why not at the very least put a tax on them to compensate those who are hurt by these protectionist measures, which are clearly unfair. Tax on greenhouse gas emissions, we certainly need that in order to discourage uh, CO2 and methane emissions and also to raise money for development in favor of those who are polluting less than their fair share. Uh, a tax on arms exports, I would rather end them altogether, but at the very least a tax on arms exports to compensate for some of the great harms that these arms are uh, doing in the developing world. An alternative minimum tax on the profits of multinational corporations. Multinational corporations are shifting a lot of their profits out of poor countries into tax havens in order to avoid paying taxes on those profits. If we put an alternative minimum tax on them and say that no matter where their profits may officially occur, they have to pay 12% tax on their worldwide profits anyway, from which they may of course subtract any national taxes they've already paid, then the incentive to shift profits out of developing countries and also developed countries often into tax havens is very much diminished because they have to pay the tax anyway. Accounts with unknown owners or beneficiaries should be abolished completely. This is now to some extent in progress. 
So the U.S. is leaning on Switzerland, for example, to reveal the names of U.S. citizens who hold secret accounts in Switzerland. But the danger here is that this will only benefit the richest and most powerful countries who can pressure the Switzerlands of this world to reveal the names. And really, we should aim for a system where any country can get the information about the people who are holding money offshore and get their potential tax revenues, especially, of course, the less powerful poor countries who are losing money this way at a much, much higher rate than the developed countries. So uh, offshore financial wealth in the developing world is around 33 to 40%, whereas offshore wealth by US citizens is somewhere around 2%, in Europe around 8%. Uh, no more holding poor countries responsible for debts that were taken out by dictators and illegitimate rulers in their name. So announce in real time, this ruler is not legitimate enough to borrow money in the name of the whole country. So if you lend money to this guy, you are going to be on your own. We will not support you in trying to get this money back. Ditto for natural resource purchases from unrepresentative rulers. Uh, it's very hard, politically very difficult, to uh, stop such resource sales, but at the very least we should try to put a tax on them in order to discourage such sales. And finally, we should try to find a way around the TRIPS agreement by allowing new medicines to be rewarded not through patents with very high markups, but on the basis of their health impact. So f offer pharmaceutical companies a reward from public funds in proportion to how their drugs are improving public health. And that would, of course, be tied to the condition that they then have to sell their product at cost. That would make at least some group of medicines available immediately at cost so that poor people can afford them and would also create a very nice public good when southern and northern countries would be working together to create a stock of medicines that would then be available cheaply from the start. Good. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. I don't know whether we can have a bit more light so I can read my notes. Yeah. That, um, would be would be handy. Um, Thomas is always a hard act um, to follow, and what you're going to get here is not me challenging him because I actually uh, agree with his concerns, and I'm not going to argue that it's good that 85 people own the same assets as the bottom three billion people in the world. And these figures that we've got about inequality are uh, are obscene and are getting more obscene. I think um, where the difference might come is in emphasis and the sort of things that I've worked on over the years, the ideas that I've worked with, are often much more about, so what would you do if you had the sorts of concerns, if you have these very broad prescriptions that Thomas has made, how would you proceed? How would you uh, take that uh, forward? Um, and that's 
partly because uh, the different social science background that I uh, come from, a, a mixed social science background, but I can't claim to be a development economist, particularly at LSE, where you have uh, some of the finest uh, development economists. But occasionally I use economic ideas along with uh, ideas from politics and international relations and sociology. Uh, particularly what I was going to sort of comment on is work that I've done looking at the political economy of the rise of global poverty as an issue and the focus on global poverty reduction and global poverty eradication and very briefly uh, think about whether this has been a good thing for poor people or whether the rise of global poverty might actually have been a bad thing uh, for poor people. It might have uh, disadvantaged them. I think probably the sort of the, some of the, the, these emphases come out of moving from normative theory to more descriptive theories that look at the political economy of policy and particularly of the implementation at international and national levels of development policies, of poverty uh, eradication policies. These often take you um, into, uh, into ideas uh, that are much more concerned with structural relationships, about the distribution of power and about the ways in which those who are powerful are able to maintain power and increase their power and thus uh, increase the share of the world's wealth uh, which, they, uh, which they get. Um, the normative theory, and we use normative theory in development studies, which is, which is my area of specialization, are very good at generating prescription. Um, but when you move on to looking at the more structuralist theories and political economic theories, they often give you deep understandings, but they can also sometimes make it difficult to... Uh, to move beyond simple prescription to work out what to do and how to proceed. But particularly important in recent work, the sort of work of economic historians like Asimoglu and Robinson and, uh, uh, and North um, international relations specialists like Robert Cox, um, is the possibility of looking at the self-interest of elites and those who are doing well and seeing whether it's possible to see ways in which that self-interest could get them to pursue socially progressive um, actions that would actually benefit poorer people, benefit those who are disadvantaged, and also to look at whether it's possible to think about normative change, uh, which happens at the individual level, but whether it's possible at national and international levels to change social norms and get people to increasingly um, articulate the unacceptability of the wealth distribution patterns uh, that we've got at the moment. Let's move on just for a few minutes to thinking a little bit about development and the evolution in which the of the practice and policies of development. And when you look at the idea of national development and international development, you tend to find that over most of the period it's existed, it sort of was invented after World War II as a response to decolonization and the inequity of, of decolonization. One finds that economic growth has been the main focus um, of what's happened. Um, there was a brief period of flirtation in the early 1970s with poverty, and there were policies, international and national policies, that looked at the basic needs of poor people, their food, their housing, their access to water, their incomes. There were policies of rural development, focusing upon 
the place where most poor people lived at that time in rural areas. But that was only for a small number of years in the 1980s and early 1990s saw policies that focused on growth through neoliberal um, economic uh, policies. As one moved into the 1990s, then the ideas began to broaden, and they broadened for a number of reasons, partly because policies of neoliberalisation and structural adjustment were not delivering uh, benefits in terms of economic growth or in terms of poverty uh, reduction in the way they'd been expected, uh, but also we can see that the collapse of the Iron Curtain and the... <laughs> the end of the Cold War uh, created opportunities for uh, changes um, in focus. And a, a whole set of things began to broaden what was understood by development in the 1990s. It began to take on a political dimension, and democracy was often associated with the promotion of development, and it also began to look um, at Amartya Sen's ideas and ideas about human development, ideas about focusing less, less about the means of development, which was seen as economic growth, and more as the end of the development, human development, human flourishing, people being able to do the things that they want to do and being able to achieve the things that they want to do uh, in their lives. Those debates actually in that political environment um, unleashed a number of forces that took us to the UN General Assembly of 2000. And the UN General Assembly of 2000 produced a Millennium Declaration. Um, there are a number of reasons for that. It's partly because when anything happened in 2000, for those of you who are old enough to, to cast your mind back to it, then you had to do something to celebrate the Millennium. And if you're having the biggest meeting of political leaders in the world at the United Nations, then you had to say something which showed the way that the next thousand years will be different and better than the last thousand years. And so there were real pressures to come up with some form of agreement in 2000 that would take things forward. And in the end, very complex political processes after policy debates, looking at empirical materials, looking at different in a way, morally uh, founded positions about what should be done, we ended up with the Millennium Development Goals. They declared, and the 147 national leaders that uh, went to the meetings and the 189 countries that eventually became part of, the, uh, of those processes, in a way said that poverty reduction, global poverty reduction, poverty reduction across the world would be uh, the priority. That might sound a really good thing, and eventually the countries are able to agree upon eight very sensible goals about reducing hunger, about reducing income poverty, reducing maternal mortality, reducing child mortality, and about trying to set uh, targets and coming up with that. That might sound like a really good idea, but certainly those of us who've looked at what the consequences of that agreement have been... Um, have come up with mixed accounts of what's been achieved. One can certainly come up with arguments saying that it was beneficial. Foreign aid, which had been declining, began to go up again. And much of that foreign aid was focused increasingly upon increasing the incomes of poor people, increasing maternal health, reducing uh, child mortality, and a set of very potentially pro-poor uh, initiatives. It meant that many governments produced poverty reduction strategies and actually 
laid, began to lay out plans about what they do to, uh, to reduce poverty. Um, if academics like me, data collection improved massively and the analysis of poverty and policies that might reduce poverty uh, increased. And for a few years, it led to greater media attention on poor people. So you could argue that that was good, but you can also counter it and argue that, in fact, it was not a good idea. You could argue, in fact, that the UN already had a global agreement about what was to be done the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the Millennium Development Goals were actually much less. They focused only on the extreme poor and only on a number of particular areas. They did not have the, the universality and, and, the, and the breadth um, of the uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The Millennium Development Goals focused very much upon foreign aid and upon what international actors could do, and particularly the processes around the Millennium Development Goals particularly around poverty reduction strategies, meant that the World Bank and the IMF, uh, very much focused on growth still, were able to dominate debates in the poorest countries um, in the world. I think when you try and pull these together into some sort of idea, then the concept which um, my colleagues at Manchester keep on um, pointing out to me, uh, in a way is that, in many ways, that, that move to focus on poverty cast poverty as being due to a lack of access to material resources. It didn't actually look at wealth and wealth creation and didn't look at poverty as relational poverty, as a relationship in which certain people in the world are managing to control and use for their benefit increasing amounts of the world's increasing wealth, while the majority of the world's population are getting very little improvement or perhaps no improvement um, in these things. I put down in my, my notes um, the elephant in the room, but the elephant in the room has already been unveiled by uh, Thomas. We had down poverty justice and development, but the elephant in the room, um, an increasingly recognised elephant, is inequality. And I think um, over the last uh, few years, certainly social scientists, economists, but also other social scientists um, have been looking at inequality and arguing that perhaps if you want to reduce poverty, you also need to look at inequality and you need to look at what the, uh, the wealthy are doing. Uh, work at the World Bank done by uh, Branko Milanovic has particularly looked at charting global poverty and the ways in which it's increased if you measure it in certain ways. And if you've been reading anything uh, in, in, about the social sciences recently, though many of you will have seen Thomas Piketty's work on capital in the 21st century, is certainly getting a real head of steam up about whether the forms of inequality that we have um, are actually demonstrating that inequality is not only getting worse, but it's likely to accelerate in the way it's been uh, increasing if the processes that he identifies uh, are operating. Um, the policy debates, interestingly, around the millennium wouldn't allow inequality to enter the frame except for gender inequality at the national level. That was somehow internationally something which the world's rich countries, the world's elites found quite palatable to, to have as a goal. But the idea of reducing inequality between countries or reducing inequality in incomes at the national level was 
politically unacceptable to many of the key parties that were part of those uh, millennium negotiations. I think what's interesting if we look at the present negotiations that are underway about the post-2015 development agenda, then one of the things that amazes me about those is that inequality is still on the agenda. Uh, the powerful players, whether one is talking about corporate interest, whether one is talking about the USA or the OECD countries or China and India's rising powers, the powerful players have certainly not yet pushed that um, out. So there does appear to be a real opportunity at the moment to keep on uh, trying to progress the inequality agenda. I suspect that's an agenda that is more likely to make progress than a social justice um, agenda or a human rights agenda in the present uh, context. So I, I see opportunities uh, there. Um, one of the ways in which I think Thomas and I will perhaps debate it and, and hear comments from you that I think we need to take forward these arguments, though, is by taking inequality uh, beyond income inequality and wealth inequalities and looking particularly at social indicator inequalities, and that can mean health and education, access to water and sanitation. But the one that I certainly encourage Thomas and other colleagues who are working in these areas to focus is on health inequalities. I find uh, if I talk with in the USA, but also perhaps with, with business leaders, and one talks about tackling income inequality, then one reaches quite quickly, uh, one gets quite a strong argument articulated that income inequality might not be such a bad thing because it rewards enterprise, it rewards those who take risk, it rewards those who create jobs. But health inequality is something that I find a much more useful way um, of advancing arguments about inequality. If we take, for example, that a, a pregnant woman in Mali is 300 to 355 times more likely to die in pregnancy than a pregnant woman in the UK, it's very hard for someone to say, well, it serves her right. She didn't work hard enough for something. And you can then move on very quickly to why is that the case? Well, it's because of the lack of resources, the fact that medicines are not available, and the fact that the tax system is not working in Mali. And one can move on to a set of practical steps which don't appear to be uh, threatening the elite, but which are, in fact, challenging the wealthy to put more resourcing or to change some of the, uh, the things uh, that are happening there. A few closing words, because I, I, I think I'm coming up to uh, time. But, um, I mean, Thomas and I will debate. I think this focus on the international and the global, and I've written a book on global poverty looking at it, um, I think we have to look at it because poverty has become this globally analysed phenomena. But I think we need to keep real and recognise that it's action at the national level which most commonly is associated with rapid reductions in poverty. If uh, you look at the, what's happened in, in East Asia, if you look at the countries in Latin America that are now making progress, um, relatively little of that can be explained by international action. It's actually when you get not just national leaders, but when you get national elites and coalitions of social movements, whether that's women's movements or trade unions, pushing forward a progressive um, agenda. So I think we need to make sure that our debates about what to do internationally and our prescriptions internationally don't empower institutions in Washington and Geneva and potentially disempower 
those socially progressive forces and national governments in, in developing countries. The other thing I think we need to think about as we move to, forward to the post-2015 is, is think less of the post-2015 development agenda as a planning and programming agenda and ask ourselves, could this be articulated into something that might start to challenge international social norms in the way that the, anti, the idea of the anti-slavery movement, the anti-apartheid movement. Could we frame the post-2015 development agenda so it creates an anti-poverty movement so that nationally and internationally more individuals just say, this is absolutely unacceptable. We live in an incredibly affluent world. We are not prepared to accept that extreme poverty of this nature is, uh, is something that should exist in our world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you have a few minutes to <laughs> interact because I would like to give the, <laughs> the floor a chance to ask the questions. So let's say five minutes, comment. Yeah, yep. Maximum. Yes. I, can, yep. I can do this pretty quickly. So I want to maybe highlight two of the points that, uh, that David made. And one is about the interaction of national factors and global factors. So I agree that national factors can be quite decisive and quite crucial. So uh, what you said is entirely correct in my view, that if you have progressive leadership and if you have uh, combination with uh, progressive NGOs in a country, that can really turn the situation around and can lead to uh, great development. Now, what we need to ask, however, is why in those countries in which we don't have that, countries in which we have authoritarian leaders, autocrats, dictators, tyrants, uh, why does that not happen in those countries? So one thing, just to give you a sense of how that is, again, traceable to global factors, one thing that's well known and well understood, at least as a regularity, is that resource-rich countries tend to be very badly governed. That's interesting, right? That uh, why should resources have anything to do with the quality of government? And uh, I think there's a pretty straightforward explanation of why that is so. And the explanation is that countries that have a lot of resources, given the resource privilege that I discussed briefly in my remarks, uh, provide very strong incentives to people within the country to grab power by force. Because if they grab power by force, they will be internationally recognized as entitled to confer legal ownership rights and resources to anybody they please, right? So if I'm the president of Nigeria, for example, then I can confer property rights in Nigerian resources, oil in that case, to anyone I please, and I can therefore get enormous amounts of money. With that money, I can then keep myself in power, uh, hire, you know, keep the army happy, uh, get myself weapons, and so forth. And that, I think, is the reason why so many of the resource-rich countries are so very badly governed. In Nigeria, for most of its history, was governed by uh, military dictatorships, uh, dictators, and even in periods in which it is sort of officially democratically governed, it is still highly corrupt and uh, enormous amounts of money are sloshing around the system which are under the control of the rulers. So here we see that the two truths are consistent with each other, right? On the one hand, yes, 
having good national leadership is very important and can make all the difference to whether a country progresses or not. And Southeast Asian countries are certainly a good example of that. And yet, on the other hand, that doesn't show that global factors are unimportant because global factors play a great role in uh, making this sort of progressive leadership possible or impossible. So this is analogous a little bit in my teacher metaphor to how a teacher can motivate or demotivate students. So we say that, well, motivation truly is a student-specific factor. The one student was very motivated, the other was not motivated, and that uh, makes a crucial difference to how a student does in the class, how much the student learns over a semester. But motivation is, again, something that is influenceable by the teacher. So if the teacher is a sexist or a racist or in some other ways turns off a certain portion of the students, then that crucial factor motivation, which appears to be a student-specific factor, may ultimately be a factor that's driven by the global factor teacher. So the second point I wanted to highlight is the point about... uh, how we should think about our role as academics. So there is a bit of a tension between us. I mean, you emphasize, David, how we have to work with politicians and how we have to sometimes keep the truth a little bit in reserve or uh, sanitize it a little bit in order to be taken seriously in the political discussion. And uh, I'm playing more the role of the person who is safely in the academy and is is not sort of trying to uh, endear myself to politicians and so I'm more willing to say straight out what I think is really going on. So a great example of that is one that you mentioned and discussed a little bit. That's the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals. The Millennium Development Goals in many ways have been a big fraud upon the public. And it started with the conversion of what is in the Millennium Declaration. You can read that up. The Millennium Declaration is public. It was uh, the immediate output of the UNGA, UN General Assembly meeting in the fall of 2000. And that was then converted by a small group of bureaucrats around Kofi Annan, including Kofi Annan, into the Millennium Development Goals. And it was entirely perverted. So, for example, the baseline was supposed to be the year 2000, according to the Millennium Declaration, but then the good friends in the UN backdated that to 1990 because they wanted to count China's success in poverty eradication during the 1990s toward the goal, right? I mean, we can't have the Chinese work for nothing all these wonderful 10 years. We have to count this. Which led to the wonderful conclusion that for Southeast Asia and the Pacific, the most populous region of the world, MDG 1 was fulfilled already in 1999, a whole year before the goal was even (laughs) declared, right? Let no one say that we are not serious about poverty eradication. We are achieving our goals before we announce them. So so uh, then came all the, the changes in the methodology, right? So the poverty line, which initially had been announced as a dollar a day in 1985 dollars, was changed to a dollar and eight in 1993 dollars, and now it is a dollar 25 in 2005 dollars. Now, if you know anything about inflation, you know that this means that the poverty line was reduced and reduced again. Uh, it would have been in the U.S. a dollar eighty-one and a half had it remained in 2005 dollars, had it remained at the same level as the 1985 single dollar. So by reducing it, you get, as an empirical matter, a much steeper decline in poverty. 
the hunger goal. Well, in the year 2012, year 22 of a 25-year Millennium Development Goal tracking exercise, the FAO finally succumbed to the pressures and said that they had a new and, so that you don't miss the point, improved methodology for counting the hungry. So what had been a steadily rising trend in the number of hungry people in the world, breaking above the one billion mark for the first time in human history in the year 2009, you may all remember that, now turned into a steadily declining hunger trend. So the number of undernourished people, according to the improved methodology, has been steadily falling since 1990. In fact, in 1990, we had a billion hungry people, and we've never been anywhere near there since that time. Now, the way the hungry are currently counted according to this new methodology is too absurd for words, but I'll tell you anyway. The first uh, criterion you have to meet to count as hungry or undernourished is you have to be short of calories. So if you're short of micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, proteins, anything like that, forget it. You're not counted. Second, you have to be below the caloric requirements for a sedentary lifestyle. So if you work, for example, sorry, uh, you know, you don't get the calories that you need for the level of work that you do. And remember, I mean, in the developing world, most people actually work, not in the way in which I work, sitting in front of a computer, but they really work. You know, even uh, the work of a housewife or the work of most people is, is just really strenuous work. And so 1,800 calories just won't cut it. But if you don't get the level that you need to hold down the job that you actually have, but you are above that 1,800 level that I need for my computer work, uh, you don't count as undernourished. And the third condition is that you have to be short of that 1,800 calorie mark for a sedentary lifestyle for over a year. So there cannot be, biologically cannot be, a hungry or undernourished rickshaw driver. Because if a rickshaw driver were below the minimally adequate for the sedentary lifestyle, that level, that guy would be dead long before the year is up, and so will never appear in the statistics. Right? <laughs> so it's this absurd. And of course, the FAO didn't do that because they thought this was a better methodology. They did it under pressure because the World Bank's poverty number has had been falling and falling. And so the World Bank looked a little bit odd, given that hunger had been rising and rising. And people like myself were pointing out, you know, how in the world are you calculating poverty? if hungry people are multiplying and the poor are shrinking, right? What is poverty if, if not hunger? Anyway, so now there's golden harmony between the World Bank's numbers and the FAO's numbers. And, you know, again, so it's a fraud upon the public. And the question then is, is it something that we should maybe participate in? Can we excuse people like Kofi Annan and the bureaucrats around him by saying, look, if we don't play games, if we don't uh, show good trends and so on, then we will lose the attention of the politicians. They will stop paying attention, and then poverty will maybe disappear as a topic. So what we need to do is to uh, give the politician, at least compromise with the politicians, give them some of what they want, let them proclaim success, in order to keep the topic of poverty on the political agenda. Or should we as a matter of principle, just say we will not participate in a fraud like this, no matter what. 
I think at this stage, I mean, we can try to answer. And, uh, okay, so I will take the to, questions. Uh, or maybe you want to say briefly something. I mean, Thomas and I are, are agreeing on a, a lot of things here, but being a sort of applied social scientist rather than a moral philosopher, there's certainly some difficult differences yeah. coming up. And one of those is about the moral dilemmas of being an applied um, social scientist. I, I think Thomas in his comments there, in a way, indicated that autocrats and authoritarian regimes, this is not a good thing. Unfortunately, when you get down to looking at national poverty reduction, then you find that often the assumed correlation between democracy and poverty reduction is just not there. It depends. It varies enormously. And some authoritarian regimes actually deliver much yeah. better and much faster poverty reduction. And so it's the, the quality of those regimes. And that take, takes you on when you look in very applied ways, the sort of works that the Effective States and Inclusive Development Research Centre I run now. Some of the questions we're asking in the countries we're working in is how would you get coalitions of business elites to come together that will actually probably be corrupt, probably doing deals that stop other people from entering the market, but will put pressure on governments to get the customs service to work, to get the electricity to work, to get the schools to work, and to give basic health services to workers. And when it comes to these I mean, very difficult situations, probably the ultimate ones are sometimes with regard to civil war and some of the analyses that are now coming out of that. And it is, if you want to stop a civil war, then maybe what you do is you give access to an elite which hasn't got access to the oil or the gas or the mining resources. If you give them privileged access, if you help them, then actually peace is more likely because you haven't got a large organised group who are perhaps committed to keeping the system destabilised. And so certainly as one moves on to these more political economic analyses, there are very difficult questions about working, I mean, not just with imperfect people, but perhaps with bad people, because most of the success stories are not produced by saints. They are produced by coalitions of political elites and business elites, sometimes pushed by trade unions, sometimes pushed by indigenous and ethnic groups and other coalitions who, for different reasons, move into processes that create growth that at least spreads out to a, a, a significant part of the population. And that's a real moral dilemma because... Yep. I think I will take uh, I will take a round of questions. I mean that would be easier. Um, there was a lady here and uh, and uh, Alex and you. Yes, that's three already. Yes, please. And thank you. Something I found very interesting coming out of your presentations is potentially this kind of difference between um, getting elites, global elites, to see the self-interest in reducing or eradicating poverty versus kind of the moral duties we have that are derived from our human rights. And I guess a question to Professor Polga then might be, does it matter which one? Does it matter if we eradicate poverty because elites see it as being in their self-interest to do so, or should it be because of a moral motive? And I suppose, do, does the end justify the means? Okay, yes, your question, please. I have a question about an apparent success story in recent years. Um, the Lancet, uh, I think a few months ago, published a first kind of major research on overview of what's happened to trends in deaths in malaria. And they attribute a very substantial fall in global deaths in malaria to the investments partly prompted by the uh, Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria. 
And uh, similarly, you know, we know that many millions of people are now alive uh, on uh, antiretroviral treatment that would not have been alive but for a global movement um, to get these medicines to them effectively. So this is an apparent success story, but uh, I've heard... Uh, Professor Poggi mentioned a few apparent success stories which are dissolve under closer analysis. So I'm interested whether he believes this really is, or whether both speakers believe this really is a success story, and if so, what can we learn from it for the future? Please, yes, question here. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, like in the national domestic level, we have uh, the mechanisms of redistribution, taxation, justice, justice system. And since we are living in a global world, a global economy, and the system of creating injustice and creating inequality is basically the markets, the global markets. And the only means that we know to um, regulate the market is the state. So maybe what we need to have is a global state, a world federation, democratic. And there is a question of the lady over there in green, yes? Uh, yeah. Oh, sorry, I mean, I missed you. Yes, okay. Okay, uh, I'll jump the queue then. Uh, is a slightly oversimplified way of defining the difference between you that David's talking much more about power and uh, Professor Fogg much more about, in a sense, starting from first principles and defining what he would do in an ideal world and assuming that, in some sense, we would all agree with him. I mean, his... Uh, suggested remedies included so much as an economist I found not just second but third best so I certainly wouldn't want to be associated with them for my first principles but more importantly I wouldn't want his or my remedies to be imposed in that way I would rather use the uh, approach of improving the power of the poor and letting them then decide what to tax, how to tax how to change the institutions Yeah, thank you and the lady in green over there Thank you. I wanted to follow on from from the same, the the previous question in in similar line. It seems to me like uh, what what Professor Poggi said is that there's an elite that uh, internationally have the power to to influence and and manipulate even British or European or US governments and their power is able to to influence what goes on and and these lots of the success stories are really just crumbs falling from the table because these people who are supposed to be poor are are in fact people with some of the the, the best uh, ideas and energies I mean you talk about risk taking deciding to go in you know the wheel bay of an airplane or, you know, jump under a lorry or something, you know, what more risk-taking than you want? Other people say, you know, I'm going to sail somewhere to take a risk. And it seems that there is a, 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 
a, a, an unwritten, unspoken agreement, really, among a, 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 a worldwide elite, and it really doesn't matter which nation they, they belong to, 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 to maintain that status quo and, and simply to use governments. It doesn't really matter whether they, they, they're democratic or dictatorial, as long as that government is to continue facilitating that elite. And the NGOs and, and aid and so on really are, are just, just assist that. That's the acceptable phase, because if one looks at aid. It's you know the same thing as well. It doesn't really do much good so in the end. What is your precise question? Sorry, my, my question is: How does one uh, uh, cut through? Because the way uh, uh, Professor Poggy puts it, it seems very logical. Why is it that that? Other academics, I mean, you, you kind of hinted at, at, at the reason, but what can one do to, to ensure that, that that kind of information gets to a wider population and to cut out all the other time, what appear to be time-wasting things within institutions like World Bank or UN or whatever? Okay, right. thank you very much. I think we have enough with all these questions and, uh, to start uh, the debate, yes? Um, okay, okay. enough material. Okay, yeah, and no, great questions. Um, I, I don't think we uh, can give any uh, detailed answers to um, to any of them. I mean, the first one w w was um, should it, should we be looking in a way for moral motives um, and that in getting global elites to to do the right thing? Um, I think in in the world in which I work of of, you know, of real world policy, then it, it's working with both both of those tools, one tries to work out how one might be able to create situations in which those with power and resources might see it in their interest to do things that would actually be beneficial to a much larger group of people um, within their region or, or within their context, but at the same time then other things other pressures that might actually get them to rethink uh, the norms that they're applying uh, in a way yeah, should be pushed on. Um, I suppose one really goes back to sort of thinking about the moral motives and that one. I think we still have to recognise that, you know, the world in which yeah, I've largely lived, the major sort of change in it has been the argument that sort of greed is good and that getting lots of stuff is is good and that the more you consume the better you are and so you know we, we do have to find ways of of challenging um that uh those pervasive forces and certainly in the forms of uh, development that one's seeing in emerging powers where poverty is reducing this is still very much based upon uh, individuals um looking to consume uh, more and more so i think one works on both of those uh, of those fronts the sort of deaths with malaria and HIV AIDS, I mean, I, I think um, Thomas will come back on those, but quite clearly, particularly if you look at the figures for child mortality in Africa, then something has happened with malaria, uh, and that's been good. A lot of that is put down to the treated bed nets. And if you want a story about how aid works, then you wheel out treated bed nets. That's the story that you can use to persuade naive taxpayers in rich countries that if you double aid, you'll double the benefits that we can get to the world. Though those very simple short-term impacts like that are, 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 are not always um, 
easy to uh, to find. Uh, if you look at the evolution of the global funds and uh, and the funds on HIV AIDS and what's happening in in global health, um, it's interesting. There's more money potentially going into global health, but I think Nairi Woods, an academic at Oxford, calls it Trojan multilateralism. <laughs> the countries that are giving money for global health are increasingly not putting it into a multilateral pool in which there are multilateral discussions or there are national interests from poorer countries coming in, but they're saying, no, I want this money to go to West Africa for this disease. And so actually the forms of engagement with multilateralism are actually not creating room for decision-making in uh, in poorer um, countries. Do we need a global state? I've got a colleague who's, you know, thinking of writing a book on that. He's just written a book on how to make the WTO work. So he's a pretty, uh, quite an optimist in that. But um, I think when you come down to it, I think it's probably good if some people talk about those things in the right forum, but certainly not in the in the USA with policymakers there who, if they thought that countries were going to propose that, wouldn't want to engage in, in discussions with countries that might propose that. But you know, the real focus is how do we get the very imperfect um, multilateral institutions and the UN institutions in, in particular, how do we try and get them to work um, a, a little bit um, better? Shall I pass over to Thomas? Good. So... Um just a few quick thoughts. The f- on the first question, I would say, of course, it's nice for people to be morally motivated because they're reliable allies, right? Prudentially motivated allies, uh, it's important to get them. It's important to work with them because morally motivated people are not in sufficient quantities and with sufficient power to get the job done. But it would always be better if more people were morally motivated and thus reliable allies who would stick with the cause. Uh, On the second point, the Global Fund is fantastic. It has done a tremendous job, and uh, PEPFAR has been uh, moderately successful and so on. It was the flavor of the decade in the first decade of the 2000s that we focused a lot of attention on health. But the question is always, what do you compare it with, right? You're saying that compared to what one might have expected at the end of the 90s, uh, this was actually better than expected. It was pretty good. It worked pretty well. But compared to what would happen in a just world, well, the AIDS crisis would have been handled completely differently, right? There would have been much earlier, much more concerted action, and there wouldn't have been this enormous number of people who died before anything serious was done. With redistribution, that's sort of an interesting question. I see that quite differently. So uh, I think that the right way to think about that is that at the national level and also at the global level, we have a choice of rules, So there are different ways of arranging the national economy. There are different ways of arranging the global economy. And this choice has distributive implications. So depending on how you organize the global economy, you get different distributions resulting engendered by these rules. And so you could uh, have this present system that you have, namely a loose sort of not exactly a world government, but you do have the beginnings of global governance. You have uniform rules for this, that, and the other thing. And uh, you could have the same sort of degree of global concentration of power, but have it with rules that have much less centrifugal tendencies that are distributing income and wealth in a much better way. And so I think there's no correlation between uh, how much uh, income inequality the rules generate 
and how centralized they are. You could have world government with extreme inequalities and you could have uh, the loose kind of governance that you have now with much more equality. And then with regard to the elites, your question, just briefly I would say that it is true that globalization, which means many things, but one thing that it means is the shifting upward of rules from the national level to the supranational level. So many things that used to be settled in each nation state individually are now settled through supranational negotiations. And this space, this new space of international intergovernmental agreements is a space in which lobbying is particularly successful. It's a space in which democracy doesn't enter, in which there's very little transparency, in which moral arguments can easily be dismissed with the remark that international relations are a jungle where only those survive who are uh, sufficiently brutal and uh, self-interested. And so in that sort of space, uh, the power of a very small elite of multinational corporations, banks, hedge funds, billionaires, their power to lobby is almost unopposed. And that's why I think this shifting upward has been, on the whole, a negative for the rank-and-file populations, even of the rich countries, but especially for the populations of the developing countries. Okay, so um, please, yes, your question here, the gentleman in blue, yeah, and here, and there. Yeah. Hi, um, I'm curious as to the kind of distinction between your backgrounds and when you move from the descriptive to the normative. So for Professor uh, Thomas Poggy, how do you decide at what point you move from what seems like a quite descriptive and non-ideal theory when you talk about the motivations of uh, and changing the motivations of dictators. And as you move upwards, why do you decide at the supranational level to um, make a normative claim about the way that people should act and abstract from the motivations and lobbyists at the top? So at what point conceptually do you make the decision to move from descriptive to normative? And then similarly for David uh, Hume, at what point do you make the decision and what point do you inquire about the normativity behind your more descriptive papers? Thank you. And this lady here. Hello. Um, I have two questions. We were, um, they are mainly focused on human rights. Basically, first for Professor David Hume, um, you mentioned that inequality was a better wording, like uh, better than, than human rights or social justice, and I wondered why. And for um, Professor Thomas Poggy, I wonder, um, you mentioned mainstreaming and the fight against poverty, and my question is why not the fight, um, why not mainstreaming human rights? I mean, if it can be like a useful tool to the fight against poverty. Thank you. And uh, there was another, yeah, um, there was someone, uh, yes, this uh, lady over there, yes. Yeah. Uh, 
Hello, thank you. Um, I would have a question concerning uh, global social movement, because we're all talking about governments, states, elites, but today we also see the power of social movements and talking about global forces. I think we can't deny the power of global social forces after, after the, um, uh, the Arab Spring. Or even, and, and even concerning the global institutions, we, we saw uh, NGO, NGO coalitions and leading to um, uh, cooperating with developing countries leading to the Doha Declaration in 2001, for instance. So what would you, uh, and, and David Hume t- talked about that concerning the post-MDG uh, agenda and maybe an anti-poverty movement. And so I would like to, to see a bit your reaction about, about that. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the gentleman there, yes, please. Yeah. Professor Pogar, I wonder if you could clarify the suggestion you made about compelling pharmaceutical companies to sell their drugs at cost. I'm wondering how that would be practicable, but I have a broader concern about taking away the profit incentive to pharmaceutical companies. I mean, if you did um, force them to sell at cost, what incentive would they have to engage in research and development uh, in developing drugs in the first place? Uh, Isn't there a broader danger about snuffing out the development of drugs and uh, a longer-term Danger that they won't be coming to uh, to market at all. Thank you. And um, and the last question over there. Yes. Thank you. So you were mentioning social inequality, and I was wondering if a stronger intervention intervention of national states in the private economy could actually be a solution for socioeconomic inequality. I was thinking, for example, of um, the access to education in India. If you think about the marginalized children, could that be a solution that you have a stronger state intervening in the private economy for social inequality? I would like to discuss that. Thank you. So we, um, yes, we can take a last question here, and that's it. Yes, thank you. Yeah, comment following up on the other one in terms of the the value of the social movements in contributing to the focus on global poverty. Can, could you speak up, please? Uh, oh, the value of social movements in contributing to the focus on global poverty in 2000, particularly ultra globalization movements, the decades of protest against structural adjustment in the global south, etc., seemed to be very vital. So I was just interested that you didn't comment on that in terms of changing that th- dynamic. But um, to both um, Professor Poggy and, and yourself, um, Professor Hume, to what extent do you think we need to be focusing on the, the sort of extreme elites or the extremely wealthy and multinational corporations, or is it about middle income, or is it about strengthening the power of the, of the poor more? Where, where do you see the balance of, of efforts there? Thank you. Good. So I'll start. On the first point about descriptive versus normative, so uh, my picture is essentially that I don't switch gears, so to speak. I analyze the whole situation from four different standpoints that are overlaid upon each other. So I start with the descriptive. What is happening in the world? Uh, how, uh, you know, what's happening with poverty? What are the trends and so forth? Then I go to the explanatory. I try to find out why this is happening. What are the relevant causal factors that lead to the observed facts? Then I go to an assessment and see what, from a justice point of view, are the 
things that are most regrettable, perhaps that are most uh, unjust or uh, most urgent to overcome. And finally, to the reform point, where I say what actually ought to be done and who can done it, do it in order to overcome uh, these injustices. So I call that the DEAR methodology, D-E-A-R, uh, description, explanation, assessment, and reform. And so I will look sometimes at the same agent in the first stage descriptively. So how does this particular agent, let's say the U.S. government, how does it act? How does it tend to act? Then I try to explain why they act in the way that they do, what are the pressures upon them, uh, who is lobbying them, who is pressuring them, what are their incentives and opportunities and so forth. Uh, then I assess it and find that uh, some of these, this conduct is actually quite immoral or unjust or whatever it may be. And then I look at how what would be the most important changes in the conduct of that agent. This is the reform thing. And that then leads to a normative case saying that what this particular agent ought to do is blah, blah, blah. And of course, that may sometimes be wholly unrealistic. It may be that that particular agent is not a suitable target for uh, simply it's politically unrealistic to try to get them to change. So uh, then there were two questions about global movements. So on the whole, I would say that uh, my generation, our generation, has probably been a bit of a failure as far as global movements are concerned. They are movements, but they are more recreational than serious, in my view. <laughs> So you have, you know, you have Occupy Wall Street, you have the World Social Forum, and so on. And these are, you know, nice, uh, vibrant things where people like to go and like to participate, and so on. But if I compare that to serious social movements that I'm old enough to remember, like ending the Vietnam War, which I was uh, involved in, in as a kid, you know, I mean, we were really serious about ending that war and uh, had, uh, you know, mass demonstrations, hundreds of thousands of people on the streets and so forth. If there were anything like the commitment uh, to poverty that there was in the 1960s and 1970s to end the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement is another example. Uh, the uh, anti-apartheid movement is another example which was pretty serious. You know, I had a lot of my students chain themselves to the classroom at, uh, at Columbia University, and they were there from starting in February. You know, it was freezing cold, and they were there overnight and so forth, and uh, it made a big splash, right? The Columbia University president gave a big speech, you know, we are doing the morally right thing, we are not divesting because this would only hurt the blacks in South Africa. And half a year later, he gave the same speech, we are doing the morally right thing, we are divesting from South Africa, and you know, <laughs> Columbia divested. And it, it was very important. It, it sent a very strong signal to the U.S. government that South African apartheid is not business as usual. This is not something that we can any longer just uh, deal with as a kind of uh, normal aberration from that is typical among countries. So uh, that's my view. I think that uh, you know we should get much more serious, and I wish I knew how to mobilize people. I'm working with some organizations that are trying to create a movement. The, the one that I'm most involved with is called The Rules. Uh, you find it under therules.org. Uh, we hope we can get something going, but so far, you know, the avances and the moves on, move-ons and so on, I mean, these are nice ideas, but they are not really focused, and what we need is focus. We need to get something uh, achieved in the real world to build confidence and then go on to the next thing and not do a little bit of everything here and there. 
the, with the pharmaceutical companies, the way that works is, first of all, it's voluntary. So no pharmaceutical company is required to participate. And the voluntary thing, of course, works with the carrot. The carrot is that there is a pool of money each year, $6 billion, that is distributed among registered drugs. So you can register, anybody can register their new drug with the Health Impact Fund. And if you register your drug, you get a share of this reward money. And what the share is depends on what share of the health impact of all registered drugs is attributable to your drug. So if your drug accounts for 8% of the health impact of all the registered drugs, you get 8% of the money that year. That happens 10 years in a row. So the first 10 years your drug is on the market, you get this reward money. And in order to register, in order to be eligible for this reward money, you have to promise to sell your drug at the lowest feasible manufacturing cost. That's basically how it, how it works. So it's voluntary. Uh, governments uh, organize these pools, each one according to their gross national product, 0.03%, uh, something like that, a very, very minuscule little slice of gross national product. And what we would get with that is a pool of about 20 or so, 25 drugs, that would be presumably targeted on the diseases of poverty for the most part, because those are the drugs that cannot earn a lot of money on the patent track and would earn quite a bit of money on the health impact fund track. And then on stronger state interventions in the private economy, Again, I mean, the state has, uh, I, I see it slightly, it's sort of your picture is a bit the Nozickian picture of the state coming along and taking from the rich and giving to the poor and so on. What I always emphasize is that the way in which markets are organized, markets have rules, right? They're not completely unruled or unstructured. And the way you structure a market makes an enormous difference to the kind of pattern of income, wealth, health, and so on that gets produced in the society in which that is the, the going market. So the question is not so much more government or less government. The question is, what are the rules that determine this market? So, for example, when you have uh, the rules uh, governing debt, right, you can have a rule that says that if you can't pay your debt, you go to jail. You can have a rule that says if you can't pay your debt, your child will do child labor and will be given to the, uh, to the creditor and will work for the creditor as a kind of slave. And, or you can have a rule where you just say, well, you just uh, declare bankruptcy in three years, it's all over. So these are differences in structure. This is not more or less government. This is just the way in which the market is structured and organized, and we should aim for a structuring of markets, both globally and nationally, that will engender a more equal, more poverty-avoiding income and wealth distribution in preference to one that is more unequal and generates a lot of poverty and unemployment. Okay, thank you, Thomas. So you will... Okay, yeah. Um, I mean, the first question about shifting between descriptive and normative theory, I think, I mean, Thomas is much more structured and systematic than I am. Uh, certainly for me, it depends on the audience and the task in hand. Um, if I'm teaching students, then they'll get the normative and they'll get the descriptive, and then they'll get a discussion about how these two things might relate, and they'll probably have to answer exam questions that will force them to try and think how they might get those to relate. If I'm talking to a US policy audience, which I think is suspicious of the idea of 
poverty reduction, then I'll talk about the importance of tackling inequalities and use health inequality examples and probably keep away from the income inequality examples because of a concern that that I'm not persuading them that inequality is an issue once I look at income inequality. Um, I don't know, Thomas and I were talking about it a little bit before in a way, the strong case uh, for speaking truth to power, but in some cases I think moderated truths. I mean, telling lies to those in power I don't think is actually going to advance things, but trying to think of what form of argument, what forms of evidence will help this person perhaps shift their position is something that I think is worth doing. I mean, there's a danger if you don't do that, that you can actually say the right thing, but persuade powerful people that that they will oppose uh, that. And and so I think the framing is important. Why is inequality likely to be better than human rights? Um, I need to think more systematic about that to think, but I mean, Obviously, uh, there's the history of human rights. We've had the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Thank goodness we've got it. But it is taking a long time to filter through. And maybe when we're thinking of post-2015, we need to be thinking about things that are coming to hand. And I'm surprised that inequality is so much on the agenda and hasn't been blocked out. But that does seem to create the the opportunity to, uh, to try and push that forward at the moment. In three or four years' time, it might be that human rights appears the frame that could advance uh, socially progressive um, arguments. Social movements and this sort of thing, um, and and, and NGOs, I mean, social movements, it's it's often very hard to to work out how they impact on things, and particularly nowadays when we've had the NGO coalitions. Um, If I look at what was happening in around the millennium and what's happening now around 2015, then it's very hard to get the empirical data because there's just so much going on. But I am concerned about a difference in the processes. And around the millennium, many of the NGOs and groups that were talking, particularly about debt in the run-up, were embedded in society. They were church groups. They were committed. They came out on the street to some degree. Whether they were a movement, you could question, but they were certainly an ongoing campaign that was socially embedded. What horrifies me about the post-2015 development agenda is most of the NGOs, and I'm able to talk, when you get grey hair, you can talk to your students who run these NGOs nowadays. They are so slick and so professional and so much part of the lobbyist world, and they've taken this on. And they'll say they're lobbying for the right Things. I mean, and probably somebody needs to do that. But I'm worried that this isn't socially embedded. It's not bringing. <laughs> Our colleagues are, are that. It's becoming an increasingly sort of elite game in, in which you know how do you compete with a business elite which is selfish? Well, you set up a socially minded elite in NGOs which uses effective lobbying techniques and bullet points. And that may be the case. But you know, I, I do think it's time to think about about whether one could embed uh, in societies and not just in the rich world I mean clearly thinking about India and China and Brazil mm-hmm. and how one actually whether what one could help the middle classes and the the poorer groups in those countries work much more I do wonder whether we need a counter movement and that I do wonder whether NGOs and civil society groups are putting more time than they should into looking at this post-2015 development agenda and whether it would be worth more time thinking about international social norms 
reading about the anti-slavery movement and apartheid and you know, the fact that there are now rules to war. You can't have fun just chopping up the soldiers you've caught. That's generally seen as unacceptable. It, it didn't used to be. Um, you know, if one looked at those things, is there some way that we could frame something? You know, it, it, would it be through a focus in a way rather than on making poverty history, which didn't really, you know, would it be on stopping preventable child deaths um, now? Uh, and goes the, uh, the, the, the finance minister um, of, of Nigeria, she's keen on saying jobs for youth for Africa. She thinks that's what's needed to get in a way, business and civil society in Africa focusing upon the, the big issues. But I do wonder whether it would be possible to focus on something that might engage larger numbers of people who will find uh, these things are, are, are unacceptable. Um, uh, 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 and that, but I'm really worried about the professionalisation of NGOs and the co-option into, into uh, the world. The th- final question I think was about whether to focus on extremely r- rich elites or the middle class or poorer people. I think you know one needs to be looking at all of them. One needs to get away from the romancing that if we organise poor people that this will change things. That's part of the game, but you've also got to be looking at the elites and saying. Would it possibly, you know, would it be possible to change things uh, with these elites? And increasingly, uh, I mean, applied political scientists looking at the national level are looking at the possibility for trying to create coalitions of business elites, which are, for self-interested reasons, pushing uh, certain business interests. But those are business interests that are likely to create growth which is job-creating and labour-intensive. Uh, it's quite difficult to find those, but you know, I, th- I think we need to be looking at a variety of different uh, levels. Thank you very much both, and I think we can uh, close on that.